We have someone special in the studio this week. Instead of convening the pop culture panel like we usually do to talk about, you know, whatever Justin Bieber has been doing these days or what color Beyonce's hair is this week, uh, we have one guest. But what a guest. Dennis O'Regan is his name. Uh, he's an English rock photographer, and you have been looking at his pictures since at least the late 1970s. Uh, the NME, if you were a fan of the New Musical Express, and I know that that, for me, was the magazine that kind of kept me in touch with what was going on, where the music that was happening, that I wanted to hear, was happening, but I wasn't there. So I would buy the New Musical <laughs> Express, and uh, unknowingly, at the time, look at a lot of your photographs. So uh, there's, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your work with David Bowie, a new book, and I almost don't want to call it a book because it's more like an art piece called Ricochet uh, that you'll be able to uh, to buy, and we'll tell you all about how you can get it and all that kind of thing. But it's a beautiful collection of uh, very intimate photographs of David Bowie, memorabilia. Uh, this is something that we were talking off off mic that you'll want to will to your kids later on. <laughs> so, Dennis, nice to see you. Nice and to you have too. you in Thank here. Thank you. Too, so, let's go way back. We're going to, we'll get to David Bowie and all that stuff shortly, but you didn't always start off with the idea of being a photographer. And uh, from my reading, you attended art school and the Ealing Art College. And, you know, people like Pete Townsend, no? Yeah, what I didn't do was attend art college. That, but that was the unusual thing. Yeah, Pete Townsend, I think Ronnie Wood, Freddie Mercury. Oh, you were offered a place and I you didn't go. I was offered a place and I didn't go. My parents said, um, you'll never get anywhere doing that. So what you should do <laughs> is go and work in the city for an insurance broker. So that's what I ended up doing. And how did that work out? Because, I mean, obviously you, you, you didn't love it because you went on to do other things. But what was going through your mind there? Did you think, okay, I'm going to have to wear a blue pinstripe suit the rest of my life. And, and I did wear a blue pinstripe <laughs> suit. Exactly. You must have, you must have seen me after all. Um, I didn't want to work in the city, but we went on a day course and I went to, on a day course to Lloyd's, yeah. which is the And the insurance. city of course is London yeah, that yeah, we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to write back and say, thank you very much. And they wrote back and said, would you like a job? My parents said you would. <laughs> and I'd been offered a place at art college, even though I hadn't taken art. And I hadn't mm -hmm. taken art because you needed to take art history. And that sounded a bit unart-like to right, me. Right. So I didn't take it. And that meant I wasn't allowed to do the A-level, which is the, the final exams. Mm -hmm. So the art college said, we'll give you a project to do. Do some work, send it in, and then we'll take a view. So I'd skipped over the bureaucracy. Yeah. And then uh, my parents said, we're not going to support you doing that because this was the early 70s mm -hmm. and my parents had come from a village in Ireland and to them um, working in the music business was not really a real job so working in the city definitely was and they were right I mean at that point it was a different world well I also think things weren't going well in England at the time unemployment especially for people of your age at that moment was way way down there I mean there's a reason why punk rock happened shortly afterwards and uh, your parents probably said, Lloyd's of London, that's the most famous company in the world. That's a brand name, and he's being offered a job there. I mean, exactly. we don't have to worry about him. There's one check off the exactly. list we don't have to worry about. And it used to be a job for life, which, mm -hmm. of course, also went out. But as you say, London was in the doldrums. Um, in the early 70s, there was rubbish piling up in the streets. It was, considering in the 80s, it became such an incredible place. Mm -hmm. In the 70s, it wasn't, as you say, out of that came punk. And at the same time, out of the city, I came. So <laughs> effectively, I was photographing people on stage. I was learning my craft photographing them, and they were learning their craft on stage live in front well, of an audience. I, I love the sort of the punk rock ethos that goes to that. And we'll get to that in a sec, but there was some 
concerts that really struck a chord with you, I think, that pushed you towards this. So you go see the Beatles at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1964 yeah. with your mother. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, later in the early 70s, you smuggle a camera in to take pictures of Paul McCartney. Uh, then there is a show that I wish I had seen. David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust exactly. at Hammersmith Odeon. You took photos there, and those were the the shows, as I understand it, that you went, "Wow, this is exciting." That this show, that one night, changed my life. The David I, Bowie show. Yeah. yeah, I had seen Led Zeppelin. The bands I'd been to see out of choice were Led Zeppelin, The Stones, yeah. Alice Cooper, um, and then so a friend suggested, "Yeah, it's a pretty good start." As it was, yeah. and preceded by the Beatles <laughs> as well. So, and uh, a friend said, "Should we go and see David Bowie at um, Hammersmith Odeon?" and um, and I wasn't that nuts about it because I hadn't really gone into his music much. Right. I'd seen him on Top of the Pops or the old Starman. That was probably Starman. the most, and looking back on it now, that's the clip that changed everything. That was the song, exactly. Yeah. And I'd seen that. So I said, okay, I'll go along. And um, I had never conceived of anything like that, let alone seen it. I'd seen Led Zeppelin. And uh, one thing that did... Uh, early on inspired me to want to take pictures was seeing Jimmy Page hit the guitar with his violin bow. Right. And as he did that, he then pointed to the audience on the echo, uh, on the repeat of the chord. Yeah. And I saw the chalk dust go up through the spotlight as he pointed the bow towards the audience. And I thought, I would so like to take that image home. Yeah. So obviously the seed was sown. And then when I saw David perform as Ziggy Stardust, I had never seen anything like it because it wasn't just a rock performer. It was, there was theatre, mime, everything was in this one show. And I was quite moved by it almost. And David tried to find his way through an imaginary wall, which was his mime. Mm -hmm. And then he wore a lot of his outfits were inspired by Japanese kabuki theatre. Yeah. And the girls came on stage, one on each side of him, pulled the outfit off. <laughs> Uh, on from each side, and it was all so magical to me. So um, <clears throat> now, is this the show where he announced his retirement? Well, I was about to say yeah. this is the night before. Mm. So um, everyone claims to have been there on the last night, but I don't think the place was big enough. Yeah, for they all would the have had to show it at Wembley yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> Kate Bush said she was there the following night, and that's what inspired her. Um, Gary Kemp told me he was there um, from Spanda Ballet yeah. that inspired him. So there were a lot of people there that it affected, and one of them was me. So I discovered David Bowie. So the next day, um, I thought, I've now discovered something new. It's, it's already affected me. But then I saw the headlines that evening after the following show. David Bowie retires. So I thought, I discovered this guy. I had him for 24 hours, and now it's all <laughs> over. And no one knew he was only retiring the character. Yeah. So what then happened was, I was obviously a confirmed fan, the following year, he turned up to record Diamond Dogs in the village where I live, the village in London. We call it a village, yeah. but it's you know, a town. It's just over the river from Hammersmith, where I'd seen him with Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. And he was recording Diamond Dogs, but, and I was working in um, a newspaper shop at, at weekends. And so girls came in looking for pens and paper, giggling, and I thought something's going on. <laughs> so I found out it was David. So I went home, got my five-pound Russian Zenith camera, came back, and waited outside with the fans. Um, and David pulled up silently in his Lincoln Town car um, with his driver. He was in the back. And he got out and caught me off guard because it was all so low-key. Right. And I got a couple of pictures, but I thought, I'll have to come back tomorrow and see if he arrives at the same time, which <laughs> roughly he did. So I hung around again. And as he walked in this time, I was ready. And um, having realized I'd been there the day before, he said, um, you should work for NME. So uh, just as a joke. Yeah. But of course, two years later, I did. So in 1974, at this point, I was about to go around Europe as well. 
So I'd now if just ricocheted off David Bowie, if you pardon the pun, yeah. but I'd met him vaguely. I then went around Europe um, on an interrail ticket, which meant I travelled to the Arctic Circle, to yeah. Hungary, to Yugoslavia, as it was then, across to Venice, to places that... And that had the same effect on me as David had as Ziggy Stardust. Opened would, your mind. Opened my mind. Mm -hmm. There were all these places to discover. I realised what an incredible place the rest of the world was. And it was out there to be discovered. So when I came back, I realised what I really wanted to do was photograph rock bands for the music that I loved, travel, and take pictures. I'm speaking with Dennis O'Regan. He has a book, an art piece, uh, it costs 3,000 pounds, but we'll tell you why shortly. It's called Ricochet, David Bowie, 1983. Uh, we're going to continue the story here. I just, every now and again, I remind people uh, why we're, why we're uh, chatting here. So the travel opened your mind, and so you think, okay, well, rock bands are on the road all the time. Travel, I love music, here we go. And they might pay me to do it. <laughs> so, so, How did that conversation go with your parents? Well... What I was doing at this point, so then this was 1974. So by 1976, obviously punk was beginning mm -hmm. to happen. And in the intervening year, I photographed other bands, Deep Purple or whoever was around. And I got my three songs, which is what you were allowed. ABBA, um, all sorts of people. So then in 1976, someone suggested I go to shoot The Damned at, um, what was it, Hatfield? It was near St. Albans. It was, a, it was an art college. Right. So I went along to shoot the damned, who were supported by Eater and Slaughter and the Dogs. So <laughs> it turned out I didn't know this at the time on the night. I knew on the night that the Sex Pistols should have been playing that night, but they, they didn't. And the famous Hundred Club show had just been two nights before. Right. And the Sex Pistols had been supported by the damned. The Sex Pistols didn't play this show that I went to because Malcolm McLaren, the manager, said that last time they played St. Albans, they hadn't gone down very well. <laughs> it sounded a bit spinal tap. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't play that night. So I shot the damned. And it was only their third ever show. So I had started to shoot this scene very, very early on. Right. Then at this show, I met a photographer. And this is where all the coincidences mm -hmm. that define my career started to creep in. And I didn't own a flash gun because I'd only shot shows where there were a lot of lights. Right, right. Live shows? Li yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So I wasn't used to coming into a hall in an art college where they had just three lights. So the uh, I went up to a photographer who I saw taking pictures and I said, I've left my flash gun at home, which wasn't true. <laughs> I didn't even own one. Uh, could I borrow his? And he had been photographing the scene for a little while. Yeah. He was actually probably a few years younger than me, but he'd been doing it for a lot longer. And he actually had been shooting David as Ziggy Stardust. Right. So I didn't know any of this. So he said, this isn't for me, this scene. Take your pictures into NME, which is where he had been shooting. Right. So, of course, then NME started to use all my pictures, and they suggested then I shoot this band and that band. And so I covered the whole punk scene. Was that Mick Rock by any chance? No, it was someone called Chalky Davis. Chalky Davis, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who was really well known. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dennis O'Regan, uh, English rock photographer. We're going to talk about David Bowie and the, the decades-long association that you had with him. There's a reason why this art project, this book that you have is called Ricochet, I think, because uh, your career seems to have ricocheted around <laughs> David Bowie from almost the very beginning. When we come back, there's more with Dennis O'Regan. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Dennis O'Regan is in the studio. He's a legendary rock photographer. You have been looking at his photographs, particularly in the late 70s, 
that's when I would have first started seeing them in the enemy, the new musical express, because uh, you were one of the photographers that took the photographs of bands like the damned and the sex pistols and the clash and Susie and the Banshees. And it goes on and the bands that I was interested in, uh, you were there on the ground taking photographs of them. And the thing that I really love about this, and we've talked a little bit about your brush with David Bowie, more about that later, but you were learning just as they were learning. So the, the great thing about punk rock is that it was democratized. If yeah. you could get access to a guitar, if you could steal a guitar or find one somewhere, you could start a band and get a gig somewhere. Yeah. You were learning along with them as a photographer. You'd yeah. never studied, right? No, I never studied. I was never taught. So I learned on the job. So with punk, of course, I had to learn to shoot in completely different lights mm-hmm. and under unusual circumstances because, of course, <laughs> audiences prior to punk hadn't really pogoed. Right. Um, and they certainly hadn't spat at the artist. Yeah. So all this was going on behind me and made it quite difficult, but it created, obviously, this whole scene. Mm-hmm. But what people don't really remember is that in the audience there were very, very few actual stylized punks. A lot of people are just right. there in their flares and their jackets. When you see old footage, it's funny. When you see old footage of the Sex Pistols, you will see guys that look like they just came from a Wishbone Ash concert uh, standing from in the, the office. back. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what it was like. So it wasn't quite what people thought. But when you were facing towards the stage, it was, obviously. Yeah. So I got to shoot um, Johnny Thunders, everyone, really, yeah. virtually everyone. And, of course, the, the, the thing that inspired me was David Bowie. What inspired punks was partly David Bowie, funnily mm-hmm. enough, because most punks played Les Paul guitars because right. Mick, Mick Ronson had played. So they had picked, they had been inspired by Bowie. Then bands came along to see those punk bands, and they then, for instance, became New Romantics. Right. Duran Duran, for instance, yeah, yeah. had grown up with punk, and that's what inspired them. You don't always end up playing the music that inspires you. Right. And also, the punks themselves have been inspired by the Ramones, the yeah. famous Ramones concert in England. So punk had come from America, really, but it hadn't been described as punk as such. But then the Ramones played at the Roundhouse, and in the audience were the future Clash, the future Damned, and the future Sex Pistols. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. How, it's like they always say about the first Velvet Underground record. Nobody bought it. 25 people bought it, but each one of those people started a band. Started a band. And that's what happened exactly. at this famous concert exactly. at the Roundhouse exactly. with the Ramones. Yeah. Everyone in that audience started a punk band, band. band. Exactly. And they were learning, and I was learning. So some of what I heard was dreadful. But you could tell, (laughs) (laughs) but it was, it was the sheer energy and you could see that within some of those bands were emerging almost poets like Joe Strummer, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what do you think it was about that moment? I mean, there was unemployment was ripe. Uh, you know, London had fallen apart to a certain extent. There was lots of things. It was hot that summer, 1977. It was 76. 76. And and was that the long, hot summer? I mean, it It was was... the long, hot summer, which we've just had the longest, hottest summer since then. And, And what I heard was that with the long, hot summer happening, so temperatures way above average, uh, people were out of their houses, no air conditioning. Most people didn't have air conditioning. And people were kind of promenading their, you know, crazy clothes and their fashion exactly, ideas and things exactly. up and down the street. And all of a sudden, people are taking photographs. It's in the newspaper. And all of a sudden, a movement is born. Exactly. And it became public, as you say. They were parading up and yeah. down the King's Road. Yeah. So then, of course, it was broadcast across the newspapers and eventually on television there was the famous Sex Pistols interview That's right, yeah. where um, 
was it Bill Grundy, interviewed them and they swore. And I remember I watched that news item with my mother live. And I remember <laughs> the, the look of shock on my mother's face. And I said, oh, that's that's what I do in the evenings. Yeah. So, of course, in the evenings. So I had this, still had this day job in, in the city. And so you, the you are punk rock at night in Lloyd's of London, London during the during day. The day. So, and then I had to skip off at lunchtime. Well, then I would come back, for instance, from the Roundhouse. I shot the Ramones the second time they played. And the shows would end at 11 o'clock. And then I would drive home, process all the films, develop them all in my bedroom and bathroom, dry the negatives with a hairdryer, get up in the morning, go into the office, and at lunchtime deliver those prints then to the music papers. Also that I could earn £7.50 per picture. But I knew that the value of that picture in Enemy with my name under it was an investment. And did you uh, did you save the photographs? Did you have do you have a giant archive somewhere? Because so many didn't, archive. right? Yeah. yeah, I have yeah huge punk archive. So, and you worked in black and white, and black and white's crucial to this process, right? Because yeah. you could process them yourself. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly what it was. So you could go home and develop the films on your own in your own room, and take them into the biggest selling newspaper, music paper in the world the following morning, which with color you couldn't, you had to take them into a processing laboratory. And I think that there's something about the black and white that captures the aesthetic of punk rock in a way that color photography might not have. No, it's perfect. It's gritty, it's sharp, monochromatic, which Mm -hmm. London was at the time, which punk was, it's absolutely perfect. And then as you move into new romanticism, it all becomes color. And actually you can see some of the punks as new wave came along their own punk style started to adapt. I mean, towards the end of punk, Susie and the Banshees, mm-hmm. she was virtually a new romantic yeah. in the way that she dressed. Yeah. Now, was it, I mean, it sounds tremendously exciting to me. Uh, was it exciting or was it, you're shaking your head now? No, you knew you were there at something that was different, but you, there was no way, I don't think, one single person who was there at the time thought in any way that it would be historic. Right that this would be a cultural move. 40 years later, you'd be sitting here later, talking about it. Yeah. yeah, still be talking about it. People would cherish and treasure those photographs from then. And of course, because it was black and white, there, there are fewer photographs because it costs so much to shoot. Right. It, it costs virtually a pound a photograph every time you, you, you click the shutter. So, and of course, none of us had any money. Yeah. So the, the, there's a rarity value to the pictures that were taken and just in the numbers that exist. And as you say, not everyone kept them. Yeah. Stuff was lost over the years. I'm speaking with Dennis O'Regan. The book is called Ricochet. Uh, It's 3,000 pounds, but it is everything that you'd ever want to see about David Bowie at a certain beautiful point in his career when when things were changing again, when he was, uh, I guess, shifting and morphing from a giant cult star into an international superstar. And this book, this art project really captures that. When we come back with Dennis O'Regan, we're going to continue the conversation and we're going to talk about those days. We've we've covered off punk rock uh, and uh, although I think it sounds tremendously exciting, I'm told not so much. So <laughs> <laughs> I want to find out more about uh, David Bowie in 1983 and how your relationship uh, with him was rekindled and then lasted for decades afterwards as his personal photographer. Stay with us. When we come back, there's lots more with Dennis O'Regan. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Richard Krause. Dennis O'Regan is my guest in studio. From seeing the Beatles at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1964, which maybe was the birth of your your real music 
fanaticism uh, to become a photographer, a really well-known photographer during the punk years, and then becoming David Bowie's personal photographer, but also touring with the Rolling Stones, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Neil Diamond, Kiss. I mean, it goes on and on and on. There's hardly anyone who made a record (laughs) in those years that you didn't take a photograph of. Uh, We're going to talk about David Bowie, though. Uh, So we're, we're in around 1977 now. You're taking photographs for the New Musical Express, which at the moment at that time, was probably the newspaper. The Bible. Yeah, yeah. it was the Bible. For yeah. me, Music you know, Bible. I grew up in a very small town very far away from England, and I couldn't get my hands on these records, or it took months and months and months, So, but I could get the NME, so I would read about them. So I knew everything there was to know about what Susie Sue looked like, what, you know, Elvis Costello was up to, what are these. I knew everything there was to know about them before I'd heard a a note of their music. And it was largely, I guess now, through your photographs that I got a visual style here. Partly, anyway. Uh, But it's hard to overstate the importance of the NME. So you are covering punk for them. Uh, And then something happened in 1978. I asked if I could go to shoot David Bowie at Newcastle City Hall. Right. So I was a huge fan. They His new tour was starting, which be, tours until 1983 and then Sirius Moonlight Tour actually didn't really have a name, which is quite unusual because right. now yeah. everyone has a tour name. Everything has a tour name. This was called the Isolar Tour, but it wasn't. Um, was that the record that became David Live? Was that it was tour? David Live, that's yeah. right, yeah, which had white neon lights. That's right. And I went to shoot that show and through persuading enemy and i got my three songs the same as everyone else but it's a so what that means is you get the first three songs because after that i guess the artists think well i'm going to be sweaty or i'm going to my clothes won't look as cool as it and they don't want any photographs taken after After those three songs exactly so i knelt down in the aisle in front of david and took these photographs and just again, was overwhelmed in a funny kind of way. I just thought this guy is so ultra cool. He was dressed in black leather and a white top at times, and then the white neon lights, it was all very stark. And he would stand there and look, gaze out over the audience in a sort of Che Guevara way. (laughs) And then I took a picture that kind of, to me, was my Che Guevara picture of David like that, which is one of my favorite ever pictures. And it was was used quite a bit at the time. And that then confirmed my appreciation of him. So then he didn't really cross my path again uh, for another five years. So he actually didn't tour for another five years. Yeah. So in that intervening period, through Chalky, the photographer I'd mentioned, who I'd met at my first ever damn show, he was sharing a house with Phil in it from Thin Lizzy. Right. So we were at the house one day, and um, Phil said, oh, now we're off to Scandinavia on tour. And I thought, <laughs> ooh, on tour. I said, take me along. <laughs> so he said, uh, would you like to come to Scandinavia? And I went, yeah, yeah. So off I went, two or three weeks with Thin Lizzy on the road. And that then confirmed the fact that I thought this was actually going to be what I wanted to do. This was my career. So in 1978, at that point with David Bowie, my mother died that that February, and I gave in my notice the next day, and it was such a, a, a such a, a chunk of my life had changed so dramatically. And, at and that you point. gave your notice to Lloyd's of London. Yeah, the straight job, the day yeah, job. Yeah, the day job. So I just left. I gave in my notice and never went back. So, <laughs> so I thought I'll just I'll shoot these shows without having to work all day, yeah. and of course it was very difficult. And then I went on tour with the Lizzie, and then that really set the pace for me. And I toured with them for on and off over the next few years and shot a lot of other things as well. 
and then um, decided that what I would do, because there were so many photographers in London whenever a band came to London, there was too much competition. Mm -hmm. So I thought what I would do is go abroad and catch those bands before they came to England. So this was another, although I didn't like everything else, you don't realize at the time, but it was a very good strategic move. So one, I did two things in 1981. One was I went to Scandinavia and shot Queen Mm. at two or three shows. I just asked them whether they'd give me access, and they said they would because I'd shot them before just on a three-number situation, and they'd seen some of those pictures. So when I came back with those photographs, they asked whether I would cover um, a series of football stadium shows they were about to do in 1982. So... At the, in the same period during 1981, I went to America and tried to shoot the Stones. And I only say tried to because <laughs> a friend got me passes, backstage passes, uh, to a gigantic show outside Detroit. And a girl was leading all the photographers into the pit, and I ducked in with all the other photographers, <laughs> and this girl threw me out. And it's and it was a another pivotal moment, although obviously I didn't know that. The next year, the Stones then did uh, announced they were doing a European tour and they did a UK tour that included some small theatres mm-hmm. one of which was Aberdeen in Scotland so I went up to shoot that for a German magazine and I was sitting in the departure lounge to, and over there was the girl from Detroit who had thrown me out <laughs> and she said I remember you and I said well how could you yeah. she said because you were so polite when I threw you out <laughs> so I stuck in her mind so then the following week, the Stones were playing the Hundred Club in London, which is where the Sex Pistols had, yeah. uh, had played a few years before, um, as a, um, a warm-up show for Rotterdam, which would be 65,000 people two days later. So I managed to get them to shoot that show, uh, but I was also going to shoot Rotterdam. So when I got to Rotterdam, my room was upgraded, so I knew it was going to be a good day. Yeah. And then I called up the PR who was handling the tickets to get my pass for my three songs. And it was her again, yeah. Alvinia. So she said, you know, there are 75 photographers here. So I said, who's the official photographer? And she said, we don't have one. I said, I'll do it. So she said, well, I couldn't ask you, but since you've asked me, I'll ask the band. So they were the best words I'd heard in my career to that date. So she went and asked them and said, yeah, let him do one show. She called me back and said, I'll take it down to meet them which were the second best words I've heard. <laughs> so <laughs> I went down to the Feyenoord Stadium, met the band before the show, shot the show, and one thing led to another. And p- from doing that one day, I ended up doing a week to two weeks to four weeks to eight weeks. So wow. by, again, being a bit cheeky. So um, I d- I, funnily enough, in the Uber on the way here today, I thought I'm going to do a documentary and a sort of autobiography, but the illustrated autobiography. And I think I might call it Don't Ask, Don't Get, because every single move in my career really came about by me asking to do it. Or you get in in terms of the Rolling Stones, you call it, you you don't get what you want unless you you ask. You You don't always get what you want, but if you ask, you might. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm speaking with Dennis O'Regan. The book is called Ricochet. Uh, It it details in in enormous detail David Bowie, 1983, in the Sirius Moonlight Tour. Uh, We're talking about the Rolling Stones right now. Keith Richards calls you Yob. (laughs) (laughs) That's another story. Um, It was um, in because this one incident in France, which Mick Jagger wasn't very happy about, Mm -hmm. but 
the um, I, there's a platform just below. These are huge shows, yeah. so the stage is high. Just below that is a platform with the monitors on it, so that obviously the band can hear what they're playing. So that's where I would be based, and I had my laminates, which proved that I could go where I wanted. So every night I was there or thereabouts, and in France at a specific show, I saw a security man waving at me at the end of the platform, telling me to get off, and I showed him my laminate, and then carried on taking pictures and didn't see him coming down the platform, and he just pushed me off. And this was quite a quite a height. Yeah. Luckily, because I hadn't seen him coming, I probably was relaxed and I wasn't hurt, yeah. but I was annoyed. And as I left out um, from under the stage, I passed him, and I hit him really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this was just before the entrance back into yeah. the photo pit. And he keeled over, and I carried on into the pit, but the other security guys had seen it, so they all attacked me in the pit. Then the band started to see what was going on. So Bill Wyman came over and threw a bucket of water over them and threw the bucket at them. Keith took his guitar off and started swinging his guitar at these security guys. <laughs> the head of security for the Stones said to me, get on the stage or they'll kill you. So I climbed up the scaffolding, got onto the stage and walked up between Keith and Mick. Mick hadn't seen any of this going on at all, with blood trickling from <laughs> my mouth, with Mick just in the middle of a song doing his routine. So... Then we, um, it was a private plane, so on the plane at night, quite often they would watch, the band would watch a replay of the right. show that was videoed. And of course, in the middle of the show, just to rub salt into the wound, you see me bob up and then amble up the stage between the band. <laughs> and um, I was told, obviously, if there was any issue, that mm. I should report it to our head of security rather than deal with it. But obviously, it was the spur of the moment. Dennis O'Regan is my guest. We'll be back with more after this. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. In studio, my guest is Dennis O'Regan. He is an English rock photographer who has photographed, quite simply, everyone. Uh, David Bowie, though, chief among them. And David Bowie is the name, probably, that will be most closely associated with your work, particularly with the release of Ricochet, which is a, a, a compendium. I don't even know really what to call it, an art project, a book. But this details David Bowie, 1983, the serious Moonlight Tour, the moment at which he became stratospherically famous. And you had 100% access. Yeah. You were backstage, yeah. you were in cars, you were in hotels, you were everywhere, everywhere. with him. Yeah. So let's talk about why he was such a great subject. We'll start there. First of all, he was David Bowie. Mm -hmm. So uh, to me, this enigma, this amazing looking guy. And when I started on the tour, again, I didn't know I was going to be there for the whole world tour. Mm -hmm. So I had actually, someone who'd worked on the Rolling Stones tour that I had done, put together this tour and took it to David and said, travel the world. I know you're scared of flying, but you'll have to get over it for this one tour. Yeah or you won't be able to take advantage That's of right, it. because he used to, when he went to America, he'd take uh, the Queen Mary and yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, he did and he'd not take like trains yeah. across Europe. Yeah. So, um, and to that end, then, we had this private plane, which would travel all over Europe and all over America, Canada. So um, I got to meet David on the at rehearsals in Texas. So I went down to these rehearsals in a huge aircraft hangar, uh, of a place and the stage was completely set up and the band still with Stevie Ray Vaughan at that point on guitar were going through a number of songs and of course they rehearse many more songs than will fit into a show right. and then decide which ones to include. So I got down there and I didn't know that David was as warm a person as he turned out to be. I'd seen this 
effectively sort of ice cold, thin white duke, the the uber cool Ziggy Stardust. So I didn't expect an affable bloke smoking a fag. Called everyone darling, from what I understand. Darling, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so at the back of this huge place, I over the PA, I heard Dennis, and I thought, obviously that can't be me. And uh, someone said, David wants to talk to you. So I went down down to the front. And this was another moment where I thought, I will never forget this one moment. And David said, "Um, what do you think? And in my mind, I'm going, what do you think? And I think, (laughs) this is just incredible. I'm hearing all these songs, many of which I've never heard live before. And um, he said, you know, which songs do you think we should include? And I just couldn't believe he was asking me. And, of course, this was his way of getting to know me but putting me at ease. And then for a few days during those rehearsals, David would go to a gym to box, which was a way of getting fit before the Mm -hmm. tour, which is very strenuous. But after the beginning of the tour, the tour itself keeps you fit. So, of course, that was another way of us spending time together so that he could figure out whether he could spend time with me. And this would this happens on every tour, but I didn't figure out that each of these was my audition. Yeah, yeah. So I went in the car with him, and I was there photographing at, at uh, the the gym. And uh, of course, one thing that sticks in my mind, which would have stuck in his, was that I have a habit of being late, and it doesn't even matter. I was late today, but that was your fault. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a habit of being late, and I was late even for that. I just can't believe I don't know why I, or how I manage it. But on the entire tour, the, the most famous phrase throughout that tour was David saying, where's Dennis? <laughs> so, so, And that also then illustrated the fact that I got there thinking that David would keep me at arm's length mm-hmm. and that it would be very difficult to photograph him. I wouldn't get really close, which is what I had been told would happen. But when I got there, he drew me... as close as it's possible to get. So he wanted me to photograph virtually his every move. And that had never happened to me before with an artist, and he had never done it with a photographer. So I'm not really sure how that came about, but I think he just realised this was an amazing project and that he wanted what was turning into his best year ever, which was his best year ever, to be documented in detail. And um, we both took advantage of that. I saw that show... A number of times, four or five times in different countries and in different places. Yeah. Oh, wow, wow. I hitchhiked across France to go see it uh, in, in a place oh, really? called Fréjus. Fréjus, yeah, yeah exactly. I, and I had been in Nice, and I got a ride there. Now, keep in mind, I don't speak French very well. I happened to be in France completely unrelated to the David Bowie right, show. Right. I was in Nice, and I thought, I got, well, I have to, I mean, if he's playing close by, I have to see it. I got tickets. I convinced someone to drive me there, but she couldn't drive me back. So I thought, oh, whatever. I'll figure it out when I get, when you get <laughs> after the, Which after I've the done show. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I did. I managed to get a ride back. And, and I had to speak English to a, a, a young French couple who were trying to learn how to speak English. But they drove me back. But it was just an absolutely incredible show. You really, I think, uh, in those some of those shows, and I saw that show more often than any of the other concerts, yeah. uh, he was at the top of his yeah. form, yeah. I think, in those shows. It was, absolutely. I mean, they were mainstream, but still ex- uh, but still experimental. He sounded amazing. Yeah. And it's, it felt to me like it was all the stuff that had come before, all the theatrical training, the mime, and everything, everything on one stage at one time. Which he introduced in small doses mm-hmm. to, to different parts of the show. And also what a lot of people didn't realise at the time was he hadn't toured for five years, but he'd released an album in those five years, which was Scary Monsters, yeah. which he'd never played live. So on that tour, he wasn't only playing Let's Dance, he was playing 
scary monsters. Yeah. And there were a lot of very cool David Bowie type tracks in there because people thought this tour was particularly mainstream. But he was playing some of those cool tracks that he'd never sung before. So in retrospect then, David looked back at that tour and sort of dismissed it as his Phil Collins period yeah. because it was his most popular period. Yeah. But on that tour, I was told and I could see that he was at the happiest he'd ever been. Right. So he was on, he, he broke America, which m most British artists never managed to do. And he'd broken it for the first time in his career. So he was really, really happy about that. He had a hugely successful album. So there I had caught one of the most important artists in history at the peak of their career. Yeah. Although yet again, you don't know that because it's not in context of what he went on to do later on. Well, it's interesting. The, some of the photographs that I've seen, and there's a, a, a two that were taken within minutes of one another, apparently. One is him, it's in a restaurant, and he's giggling. He's smoking a cigarette, and he's laughing, and, it's, and it seems completely candid. And then two seconds later, he's leaving the, the restaurant. You said, yeah. uh, let's, you know, can we do one more? Yeah. He's wearing a fedora, and you see the David Bowie persona in that he's posing for yeah. it. And yeah. you see the stark difference yeah. between what looks like a warm, funny guy having, yeah. a, having a giggle, yeah. and then you know the guy who knew how David to have Bowie. his photograph taken. One was David, yeah. and one was David Bowie. Right. Right. And David had the dinner. We were sitting on the floor having yeah. dinner in, in Japan, uh, laughing and joking and smoking. And then as soon as he put his hat on, I said, I want to take a picture. Yeah. Because suddenly when he put his hat on, it was a totally different person, a totally different photograph that I wanted to then capture. And as you say, it was the flip side of that same coin. And that, in fact, is what people really ask about David. Yeah. What was David like? Well, on stage he was David Bowie and off stage he was David. And what I saw off stage and what I photographed off stage for nine months was David. And it was the real person. Yeah. And 90%, 95% of the off stage pictures in that Ricochet collection are not posed, mm -hmm. even if they look posed. I mean, that one of David posing was, we did not go there to take that picture. Right, right. Obviously, it was just David leaving the restaurant. But he stood there, and it was a bit of a cheeky, chappy David look. Yeah. Um, and some of the others, there's one of David sitting on his daybed in Singapore, reading the paper with a cigarette. And he looks cool, and the place looks amazing. But that's what David was doing before I walked into the room. Right. And I just walked into his room, and he was sitting on the daybed with that newspaper and that cigarette. And, of course, he put down the paper thinking I wanted to say something. And I said, "Stay, just carry on. Yeah. I want to photograph what was going on before I walked in. So the essentially that book is a collection of pictures of Dave, the real, real David. And people do ask if that is the real him, and it is. I'm speaking with Dennis O'Regan. The book is called Ricochet. It's 3,000 pounds, which I don't know how much that is, $5,000 probably here in Canadian uh, dollars. But yeah. tell us what, what it is. Because Why I'm, I'm struggling to describe. <laughs> but it's, it's not exactly a book, although it is no, a book, yeah. but there's a lot going on. Yeah, here. we call it a book, but I think it's more of a box set, really. It's, it's an, uh, an acrylic case containing various layers, and within those layers, within the 17 kilos of this box set, <laughs> are, there's a limited edition vinyl because yeah. there are only 2,000 of these books at the moment. There are only 1,000. Um, which is uh, Ricochet and Let's Starts remixed by Nile Rogers. And mm -hmm. so that's limited to just that box. Then there are three limited edition prints in each one. So each of those is unique because they're numbered. Right. Um, each one then is tagged in uh, with artificial DNA and other compounds, as the tag people say, so that they can't be 
so they're authorized and they're authenticated. Right. Also, David had put a stamp inside each of his books when he knew he wasn't well, so that no one could ever say that he owned a book that he didn't. So we had that same stamp adapted and there's a certificate that goes into each of the box sets, which is has been redesigned by Jonathan Barnbrook, mm. who designed Black Star, yeah, yeah. and who had designed David's original stamp, and that's gone into each of the box sets, and then that itself is tagged with this DNA as well. And then there's the big book, which is huge, the coffee table book, which is all photographic. Every single page virtually is a photograph. And then there are four smaller books, which give more of an insight into the tour. So. One of them is words, and David's words and my words, and lyrics from some of the songs. Then there's a book of memorabilia, because every day we got a newsletter, because there was right. no, no email. M newsletter under our right, right, door right. telling us what was going on the next day. So there are copies of those. And then one of them has a ticket from every city, as opposed to every show, because we didn't have room. And there's always a fourth one that I forget. Uh. <laughs> so, oh, which is outtakes. Right. And it shows... The, the contact sheets and other photographs that surround some of the ones that I chose for the main book and it shows some of David's markings and what he liked and didn't like. So it gives an insight into that main book. We've only got 30 seconds left, but just so people know, he authorized a lot of these photographs. He the, It wasn't like them. later on you go, oh, whatever, we'll just put this together. He authorized all of David them. David approved all of them, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's called Ricochet. Uh, it is available where? It's from online. David Bowie, no, it's Bowie1983book.com, but it's also available on the official David Bowie store. It's called Ricochet. My guest in studio has been Dennis O'Regan. I wish we had another hour because, honestly, I, this is thrilling uh, to talk to you about this. And uh, I'm going to try and scrape together $5,000 and buy this for myself. <laughs> Dennis, thank you so much for coming thank in. Thank you, too. It's been fantastic. Thank you. And thanks to Nick Mariano on the board. Thanks to you for listening.